All right. Well, I think it's time for us to get going here, and so we will do that in our time together today. We're going to continue the fulfillment process and hopefully be in a position where um, when we get together next week, we will be able to wrap up this particular discussion and move on to our next major process here, getting ready to head into the month of November, the last full month of the semester, and Thanksgiving holidays and other things going on, so we will very quickly be at the end. So I want to make sure we get everything done that we need to. Questions or anything that you might have before we jump into our discussion for today? Anything we need to talk about? A lot of you are getting close to the end of your lab work. Some of you have gone ahead and worked ahead and done the last couple of them here. So. Uh, getting close to the end on those elements and so a few more chapters to take on in the textbook and then we will be we will be done all right well in the fulfillment process um, keep in mind we we've kind of have broken our discussion into talking about organizational data and organizational levels that were relevant to fulfillment uh, master data relevant to fulfillment that's that's still where we are and then uh, in our time together today we'll get into uh, some fulfillment concepts and the fulfillment process in in detail so that's what we have on our agenda and where we will jump into our discussion today is talking about something that appeared on the last quiz that we had as a as a bonus question which is this customer material information record, and, and what is that? Well, if you think about the structure that we have for, for master data, we have master data information about our customers. We have a customer record that gives us the information that we need about their partner functions and other information related to the customer. We have material master data that contains information about all of the materials that we handle as an organization and, and tells us how to classify those as far as accounting related decisions and handle the material and other things of that sort. What the customer material information record does is it gives us the ability to think about those situations where we need to handle special cases as it relates to the interaction between one of our customers and, and one of our materials. You know, so the basic idea is, if you will, this is the customer master record that we use for just about everything as it relates to interacting with that customer. And over here is a material master record for one of the items that we sell. Well, what if we have an odd situation where for a particular customer, we need to do something special with this material? Or what if, as it relates to one of our materials, we need to do something special in our relationship with the customer? Well, that's what this customer material information record does. It allows us to look at a given customer and 
that customer's relationship with a particular material and have information that would be particular to that particular product. Now, what this gives us the ability to do is to supersede data that's in the customer master and, and in the material master. So the idea here is if there's something that needs to change in regards to the material for a given customer, we would find that information in the customer material information record. So question for you, what kind of thing could that be? You know, so we have a customer that um, has a particular demand for us as it relates to a material. Can anybody think of a hypothetical example of what we might be talking about? I didn't think it was that hard of a question, so I wanted to give you a chance to, to, to ponder it here. Okay, the customer wants us to package the product differently for them. And so we, we agree to do that. Um, this historically, and I imagine still is the case, is done a lot with electronics items. It's kind of a game that some companies play. Circuit City used to really do a lot of this, where Circuit City would go to an electronics manufacturer like Sony and say, you're selling this particular DVD player that we really would like to sell in our store, and you call it Sony Model 1127, and we would like for you to uh, sell us that same DVD player, but call it Sony Model 114A. And so Sony would say, okay, you know, if you're going to buy a million of them, we'll be happy to do that. And so Sony adjusts things like the manual that's printed and puts the new number on it, and they adjust the, the badging on the product to represent this new number. Why did Circuit City do that? Okay, the latter part is really, you know, sometimes it's because we want a custom product. And by the way, that could be part of this too. Maybe a particular customer says, we like this particular material, but we'd like you to tweak the formulation just a little bit for us. And so we could do that. But the reason why companies like Circuit City would go in and request unique model numbers is so they could run advertisements that would say, you will not find a lower price on this product anywhere. And if you do, we'll refund 100% of your purchase price plus buy you a new car or something like that. And they could do that because they were the only retailer that sold those particular products because they had unique model numbers from the manufacturer. So we could record things like that in the customer material information record. It kind of gives us a way to put in information for a particular customer for a particular product. And so examples of the kinds of things that would be in a customer material information record. Um, maybe the customer comes to us and says, you know, to make it easier on our end, we would like to order the product from you using our material numbers. So think of it this way. In our company, we buy a particular product 
and our material number for that product is MM127A. And that's what we're used to calling that product. Everybody knows what product MM127A is because that's our material number. Well, when we order it from a supplier, that supplier might have a different material number, which is their name for that particular product. And so a customer might contact us and say, you know, just to make it easier, can you set up your system so that we can order MM127A and you translate that to be your product uh, TR? 17. And so we can do that. We just go into the customer material information record and we say for this customer, for this product, they're going to order it under this different number. And so the customer can send us a purchase order referencing MM127A and when we key that into our system for that particular customer, the system will just automatically make the translation. Now, if another customer contacts us and tries to order MM127A, we have no idea what they're talking about because they don't have a customer material information record that has been defined that, that kind of overrides and, and establishes this special material number. We could, for example, have a company that says, we would like for you um, to also alter the description of the product. So I don't know whether they do this or not, but maybe, for example, the uh, Kentucky Fried Chicken Company, as they are actually now they're called KFC, they want to be protective of their, of their secret recipe. So they might contact a particular supplier and say, tell you what, um, we're going to order I don't know, paprika from you, but instead of putting it in containers and labeling it as paprika, can you put it in a container and just label it as secret ingredient number seven? And instead of us ordering from you by the material number paprika 12, which kind of gives away what it is, can we just order it from you um, using the number SEC? I don't know what number I used a second ago, SEC 7, and just call this secret ingredient number 7 and have it show up that way in all of our paperwork. And we can do that. We, we can do that with the customer material information record. If we have situations where there needs to be a modification in the standard terms, you know, normally, for example, the customer master record will say this customer accepts partial deliveries. Well, maybe for certain products, the customer says, no, we do not want partial deliveries. Well, how do we do that? How do we override the standard behavior for certain materials? And the customer material information record is the answer to that. So the customer material information record allows us to go and say, okay, for this customer, for this material, override the previous setting about partial deliveries. And, and you know, if before they said they didn't want any except for these materials or the inverse of that, um, we can establish that here. Same thing with like delivering plants. Maybe normally we serve this customer out of our San Diego plant, but for whatever reason they want this particular material or we want this particular material from them uh, for them to go from a different plant, we go in and override it for that customer on a per material basis. Shipping preferences, tolerances, you know, once again, anything that we need to set up special on a per customer, per material basis, we do that with the customer material information record. So alternate delivery plant, alternate shipping terms, alternate shipping methods, 
alternate packing. Maybe the customer says, you know, I'd like this, put in special packaging just for us. And uh, you probably have read uh, things like this in various news outlets. It's very common in pharmaceuticals for like Advil to be repackaged as like a, a, a store brand equivalent. And it's pretty much the same medicine, but it's packaged differently to go to a different outlet. Well, if we have those kinds of things where the customer says, we want this particular product, but we'd like you to package it differently for us. And this could also be things where normally we sell this in 50-gallon drums, but one of our customers is such a big customer that they're going to send a tanker truck over, and we fill up their tanker truck. And so that would be alternate packaging for this particular material that we do just for that particular customer for that material. Differences in tolerances, this goes back to what I said before, maybe customers are generally willing to allow us to over-deliver or under-deliver, but for certain items they say no. You know, we want exactly the amount that we specify and we're not open to any kind of over-delivery. We might do that, for example, if the material is highly perishable and the customer says, I'm ordering what I need and if you deliver more than that, I know it's going to spoil. So all of these scenarios really and more can be accounted for in this customer material information record. So it's actually a very, very important piece of master data that we see in the fulfillment process in that it allows us to do special things for customers that uh, will enable us perhaps to make a sale that we might otherwise have missed. Questions about this? All right, we're getting close to the end of the master data related to fulfillment. This is one we've talked about before, so I think we can go through it fairly quickly here. The conditions master, remember anytime we see the words conditions, we know that means pricing. So in terms of the fulfillment process, quite obviously, the conditions master is, is going to be relevant there. This is where we find the material price, but notice the conditions master can also have customer-specific pricing. It's worth noting that that is not a part of the customer material information record. Specific pricing for a given customer is still a part of the conditions master. And this is why this is such a very, very complex um, data structure. You'll recall when you've gone in and set prices before, you, you get this grid that has a lot of different fields are and for your labs what you've done done is you've gone in and set pricing schedule PR double zero which is actually just the default pricing schedule and you might have a material you know MM17 that you set the price at is as 550 each well, we could actually go in and say, okay, as a part of that same thing, PR00, uh, material MM17, we also sell it um, by the gallon. And when the customer orders it by the gallon, it's uh, 215 a gallon. And so we could have a full schedule here based on all the variations of that product. And then we can have pricing schedules that are unique to a particular customer. So if we actually go in and look at the full record 
for our conditions master, uh, we'll see that there's a lot of information we could pack in there to allow us to distinguish pricing in different scenarios. You can give various discounts associated with a customer or a material or things like, okay, if the customer buys one of this and one of this, they get this for free. You know, we have all of the ability to configure those kinds of things in the conditions master. So it actually becomes a master record that, that has kind of logic built into it, where it'll look at the customer order and say, okay, they qualify for these discounts and they qualify for this pricing, and it will automatically be applied to a particular order. So the conditions master is not only going to show us prices, this is where INCO terms are going to be contained. We talked about those before, and so this might also influence the freight charges and who's going to be paying the freight charges, any surcharges or additional payments that are associated with buying this item. And this last one right here gets really, really interesting in terms of the fulfillment process, which is taxes. And I think we made this observation previously, but it's worth reiterating here. Most companies that sell products are not willing to put the effort into actually figuring out taxes for themselves. Because sales tax is very, very challenging because it relates to the customer's location. And not only do you have perhaps federal tax, you have state tax, you might have taxes associated with being in a particular county. There might be other things that come into play. So there are companies out there that specialize in, in quoting taxes for you. And a lot of times what you do is just your company, you subscribe to their service. And when you get an order from a customer, you just run their address and their total, uh, basically send it out to this other company's system and it responds with the taxes that you need to collect in that situation. And then on the back end, it helps you later on in the process, send the tax payments to the appropriate government agencies to make sure everyone gets what they're supposed to. Pretty complicated, but that would be contained in the conditions master the tax implications associated with the sale of a particular product. Questions about the conditions master? All right, next in master data here, output conditions. We, we talked about this as being, in the terms of the last process we talked about, as being kind of a, uh, we use the word conditions here, but it's not really related to pricing. This essentially specifies, okay, here is how I communicate with this particular customer. Um, so for example, if a customer contacts me and they want a quotation, how do I send that to them? Do I mail it to them? Do I fax it to them? Do I do some kind of electronic data interchange? How is this going to be happen? How is this going to happen? And so I can go into the system and set up all of the capabilities that my company has. And then as we establish customer accounts, uh, we can give them the option for how they would like for us to communicate with them. 
and so that information is going to come from the, the output conditions here. It might be, for example, that a customer call, contacts us and says, okay, when the time comes where, where um, the, you, know, you need to give us a quotation, we would like for you to fax that to a particular phone number because that's the purchasing department's phone number. But when it comes time to send an order confirmation, we want that to go to the people that work in the warehouse. Basically, we'll assume the order's confirmed, but if there's any kind of problem or such, communicate that with our warehouse, so fax that to this other number here, and invoices need to go to the accounting department, and they don't want it by way of fax. They actually want you to mail it to them, and so mail it to this particular address. So we can do all of that. We can do whatever is demanded by customers. Output conditions are, are going to govern that. We can not only specify here the output type and the medium, we can also put in things related to time. So for example, we might have a customer that orders from us a lot and says, you know, we want you to mail us invoices, but we don't want you to mail us an invoice every time we order something with you because when we go to the mailbox, it'd be full of nothing but your invoices. So just accumulate all the invoices for a week and then send it all to us, you know, once a week in one big envelope so that we can process it that way. So output conditions allow us to control those types of things. You can actually, in your output conditions, um, go in and this is where you would design what you want your invoices to look like. And you could go in and say, okay, I want the invoice to be an eight and a half by 11 piece of paper. And I want our logo to show up in the upper right hand corner. And, and you design the layout of the form and where you want particular things to appear. And you can do that with your quotations, with your invoices and so on. You use this special scripting language called SAPScript, um, which I've seen before, but never done anything with. It's, it's kind of the same idea as PostScript, which probably none of you have ever worked with before. But PostScript is a document definition language that just lets us lay things out and you tell it, you know, draw a line from here to here and position this picture here and so on. And a lot of times you can send this directly to a printer is the idea here or other output medium. So all of this is something that we do in our output conditions. We have one more master data uh, element to talk about and then we can start talking about the process itself and that is the credit management master record. Now remember we talked before about the credit control area. So the credit management master record is where we find the information about the credit line that has been assigned to a particular customer. Now, Remember we established before that we can do centralized or decentralized credit control. So for example, if this is our customer and we are doing centralized customer granting of credit, then we might see that every customer just has one uh, credit management master record and that governs really all of the interaction that any of our entities would have with that individual. Well, if you think about it, that means that this credit management master record has to be able to be viewed by every part of our organization. 
So if we are doing centralized credit management, we still have this, this idea of this being a record that can be viewed differently by different parts of the organization. So if the customer has one credit line across all of our different company codes, then the credit limit is actually put in the general data. So when you look at the general data, you see their address, you see things like how we communicate with the customer, and you see their credit limit. But if what we are doing is we have a customer and there are multiple credit granting uh, entities in our organization and so company code one has their credit management process and company code two is distinct from that and company code three is distinct from that we still have just one credit management master record and in that situation in the general level there's no credit limit listed because we don't have a universal credit limit for this customer. But what we do have then is in the credit management master record, similar to what we observed before with views, for company code one, when they check the credit limit, they're going to see what was established there. When company code two checks it, they're going to see what was established for them, and so on and so forth. So if we're going with a universal extension of credit with one credit limit, that data is, is stored in the general client level portion of the credit management master record. Otherwise, if we're doing it in a more decentralized way, it's stored based on the credit control area data segment of the record, and so everyone can look at it, at it differently. Questions? Some of this I feel like we just kind of have to blast through, and so I think we've finally done that with all of the different master data here. But I want to make sure that, that we don't skip over anything anyone might have a question about. All right, well, now we get to the meat of the process here. This is the fulfillment process. So let's talk through this very quickly here, and then we're going to dig into the uh, meat of this. You will find it very, very common for people to refer to the fulfillment process as the order to cash process. And this terminology comes from the fact that essentially the process begins when we get an order from a customer and it ends when we get cash from that customer. And so a lot of people refer to this as the order to cash process. I've also seen this abbreviated as O to C written like this and people just know, okay, that's order to cash. This is one of the fundamental processes that pretty much every business is going to have because most businesses engage in, in selling products. So you'll notice this is a time where we've got this funny little thing going on here right at the beginning of the process where we have different triggers that could cause us to jump into the process. And this relates to one of the questions that I asked on the quiz last time, which is the fulfillment process begins when we receive what? And in fact, there's different ways that this process could begin. We have this optional step here that we'll talk about in a moment here, pre-sales activity. 
And this is where we are um, looking at contacts, we are giving out quotations, we're referencing agreements. It's kind of the idea of negotiating with the customer. And so the customer might contact us and say, what could you sell us this product for? Or can you sell us this product? And, and they ask for a request for quotation. They could do that over the phone. They could send us a document that's commonly called an inquiry, which a lot of times is just a letter that basically says, will you sell us this product? And what would the price be if we ordered this many? And we respond to that. Well, all of that is optional. Because a lot of times we don't need to go through all of that with a customer because they've bought from us before, they already know our pricing. So sometimes we skip right over that and jump to really the first step of the main process, which is we get from the customer an actual purchase order. And we put that into the system as a sales order. And then the next thing that we have to do in the process is we ship the order to the customer, we bill the customer, and we, we get payment from the customer. So this is a four or five step process, depending upon whether or not we count pre-sales activity as, as one of the steps here. Of course, we're going to see a lot of documents come into play here. And so we'll talk about the FI implications that come along here and the material documents and other documents as well. And so uh, this is what we're going to spend the next few minutes here talking about. Most ERP systems are not tuned to doing very, very sophisticated customer relationship management activities because vendors would like to sell you dedicated software to help you uh, manage your relationship with your customers. And, and that software is called CRM software. You can go out and spend a good bit of money as a company buying customer relationship management software. One example of a very, very popular um, CRM product that's in the market right now is uh, Salesforce.com. And companies will buy Salesforce.com. It runs in a web browser. It allows salespeople to plan their day, to uh, decide which customers they need to go and visit, to record histories about customers. I mean, it, the idea here is if you go as a salesperson and visit a customer and you have a discussion with them and they tell you that they have one kid and the kid's name is Bob and his birthday is November 21st, you could put that into this system so as to be able to keep track of that and, you know, even random stuff like Bob plays baseball. And I've seen salespeople before, depending upon the industry that they're in, that they really, they really work hard to try and establish a relationship with their customers by doing things like if they know that Bob works for such and such a company and he has a kid named Ferdinand and Ferdinand plays on a baseball team and there's a an article in the newspaper that says that Ferdinand hit a grand slam to win the baseball game last week the salesperson will clip it out and send it to uh, the person and say hey Bob I saw where your son Ferdinand hit a home run um, you know that's great I clipped this out of the newspaper I thought you'd really like it have a good day you know, and some people will, um, some salespeople send birthday cards to bot purchasers and, you know, any of that kind of stuff that we want to do. 
that would be a full-blown customer relationship management software system that would help us manage it. And Salesforce.com would, would be one example of that. We don't have all of that functionality in an ERP system. What we have is, is CRM light. You know, basically we have basic functionality that allows us to do certain things to establish and maintain our relationships with our customers. So you can go in and create um, contacts for your particular company. So you can say for this company uh, in their purchasing department, they have three people that work there, Betty, Sue, and Phyllis, and you could put in their email addresses and their phone numbers and have that to be a part of the information that you can keep track of. You can also do some things related to mailing campaigns. And this would be both paper mailing or email or other things of that sort. And the idea is this. A lot of times companies will develop a flyer and they'll send that flyer out, but they don't send it to all of their customers. So you might want to know, okay, what flyer did this particular customer get? So in the, this facet of the system, you can look and see exactly what has been sent to a customer, whether it be by email or through US mail or whatever. So you could call up a customer on the phone and say, hey, last week we sent you flyer, a flyer for our upcoming Halloween promotion. Uh, we're going to have a big party. Are you going to come to the party? And what you don't want to do is call up a customer and say that, and the customer says, I never got a flyer. And then you check into it, and sure enough, that customer wasn't invited to participate in that promotion. And so now you've kind of embarrassed yourself or, or potentially you know, damaged your relationship with that customer. So the system will keep track of all of our communication that we have with a particular customer, or at least it will if we feed that information into the system. So all of the mailing campaigns, anytime the customer has sent us an inquiry, which we'll talk more about in a moment, and we have sent them a, a quotation. So the idea is we can look at this and see a history of our interaction with this customer. Okay, uh, back in September, they sent us a quotation asking about buying 10 forklifts from us. And we responded to that, and we haven't heard anything back from them. So maybe I'll give them a call and ask them if they bought forklifts yet. And if not, I'll talk to them about this brand new model of forklift we just came out with, and maybe they'd be interested in finding out more about that. So the idea here is the CRM light functionality is all about equipping salespeople with information that they might need to be able to go out and interact with their customers much more intelligently. You know, before companies had these systems, salespeople that were really good would just keep track of this on their own, like on index cards or other things like that, or they'd create like Excel spreadsheets and type all of this into it. But what's the, what's the downside of that happening? Security maybe could come into play. Easy to lose, that could come into play. Easy to make a mistake, I, I, I buy all of that. You're missing the big one though. 
the, the salesperson has all of the information, which means if the salesperson decides to leave and go and work for a competitor, guess what goes out the door with the salesperson? All of that information. And so companies said, you know, it took a while for companies to realize, hey, this is valuable information. Maybe instead of the salesperson keeping track of this on index cards, we get the salesperson to put it into the system so that if the salesperson decides to leave, um, we still have access to that information. I don't know if any of you watched uh, Mad Men, but that was often something that happened there where someone would leave a company and they take their Rolodex with them. You know, that's kind of the old school variation on this where now we want to get people to put the information into the system so that we have we have persistence of data or in other words when a salesperson's gone their data doesn't walk out the door with them it's also in this portion of the system that that we are going to see a record of any contracts that we have with a customer or any scheduling agreements that we have with a customer that relates to their requirement to buy you know so it could be for example that a customer has signed a scheduling agreement with us that says that by November 15th they will have bought uh, 500,000 units of a particular product well that's about two weeks from now and so far the customers only bought 460,000 so if I'm the salesperson, I might want to call them up or visit them and say, hey, you're about two weeks from that scheduling agreement um, running out um, and you don't want to be stuck paying a penalty for not fulfilling your quantity purchases. So would you like to give me an order today for 40,000 units so that we can go ahead and get that processed and, and make sure you have the materials that you need? So anything like that in regards to contracts that we've signed or scheduling agreements that are in place, all of that is there in that facet of the system. And like I said, in an ERP system, you're going to see really bare bones stuff. When you move to a dedicated CRM system like Salesforce.com, this is where now you get all of this stuff, but salespeople can do analytics. You know, basically the idea is I'm a salesperson, I have a thousand customers. Who's the best customer for me to contact today? How should I be spending my time? Um, who hasn't ordered from us for a while that normally is a really good customer? And salespeople can just plan out their activities much more efficiently and effectively in, in CR, using dedicated CRM software. So normally, what we're looking at here is the trigger for pre-sales activity is a customer will contact us and say, we would like to find out what you can sell us a particular product for. And so that's called an inquiry or a request for quotation. Now, realize that what we are going to do is give them in response a, a quotation. So they tell us, how much could you sell me 15 forklifts for? A company might elect to say, well, you know, let's send them back an email saying we can sell you 15, 15 forklifts for this much money. But what we really might want to do, if this is someone who's never bought from us before, is have a salesperson go and deliver this quotation in person. 
So the way we choose to respond to this is, is going to depend on what it is that we're selling and our, the customer that we're talking about and so on. The assumption here is that the customer is going to be generating this inquiry, but realize a, a, a salesperson could also just generate a quotation on his own. Um, for example, if you were a salesperson that worked for a uh, food service purveyor, like Cisco that I think we, we talked about in a previous discussion. Well, as you're driving across town, you might see that a new restaurant just opened up. And so you might want to go and talk to them about the products that your company sells, and you might want to give them a quotation just so they know you know, prices and the kinds of products and so on. So we can actually prepare these quotation documents without it having been initiated by a customer. So it could actually happen a couple of different ways. So we get an inquiry or a request for quotation. Those are basically two different terms for the same thing for a customer. So in order to respond to that, we're going to have to look at master data. Okay, they want to know about forklifts. We sell 10 different models of forklifts. So these are probably the seven that would be relevant for them. And here's how many they say they're interested in purchasing. And so we capture all of that information and, and we create a quotation. We might also create an outline agreement. And the idea there is if the person said, uh, we're thinking about buying 10 forklifts. You know, we might say, well, our quotation is that a forklift, and I have no idea what forklifts sell for, a forklift is $17,500. But if you will agree to buy all 10 of them from us, we'll sell them to you for $16,000. $500. We'll give you a discount. And, and uh, so the idea here is if you do this, then we'll give you this. So, so that would be an, an outline agreement where we're saying this is our standard price, but this is what we're willing to do. So the customer can't call us up and say, well, we'll take five and expect to pay $16,500. They might come back and try and negotiate with us, in which case we have to respond with a different quotation. But the idea here is we, we now are talking with the customer about the key elements related to the transaction. As we look at the data that's in a quotation, okay, one of the things here is you notice it says customer master. Well, if this is a company that's done business with us before, we would have a customer master record for them. And, and that could happen. We've been selling to this company for a while, and now they want to know about buying 10 forklifts from us. So we can get a request for a quotation uh, from a, an established customer, but we could also get an inquiry from someone who's never done business with us before in which case we don't really have a customer master record at this point. But we're clearly going to have to look at our material master and look at, okay, you know, they want forklifts, so let's find all the forklifts that we sell and look at things like unit of measure. Um, we're going to have to input into the system quantities and dates and other basic facts related to their desired purchase. We're going to have to look at our pricing conditions to know what prices would be valid in this situation. And what we were talking about just a moment ago, if this is a customer that has bought from us from before, we might need to consult the customer material information record to see if there's any kind of special information there.
But the primary focus of a quotation is on conditions. You know, these are the prices that we can quote you for this particular for this particular product. One of the key elements here that I have to make sure I specify is this little guy right here, dates. Why are dates so critical in a in a quotation? Yes, sir. Or, or not just four months, four years or ten years. You know, you don't want somebody like going to the filing cabinet and saying, oh, look at this, we got a quotation from this company and uh, there's no date on it as far as when it expires. So we could still use these prices and we get a purchase order from them and we don't really want to order that. Now, or we don't want to honor that. Now, in my scenario, if it really was a quotation that's four years old, even if it's undated, then we might be able to say, no, this is too old, we can't accept it. But maybe we want to make a quotation only good for 30 days. So if that's the case, we need to specify that. Because otherwise, the customer might try and order 45 days from us and might be upset if we don't order, if we don't honor those prices. So anytime we, we put, we grant a quotation, we want to make sure that we specify a valid to date. It also is very, very important when we're issuing a quotation that we issue it to a specific entity, which is why even if we don't have a customer master record when they contact us, we might need to establish at least a basic customer master record in order to send this out because we might have a newly established business that contacts us. And they say, what will you sell us forklifts for? And we might say to ourselves, you know, we've got some forklifts in stock and they've never bought from us before, so let's give them a really good price in hopes that they like our product and decide to come back and buy more and more and more. But we wouldn't quote that price for just everybody, but we will quote it for this customer. So you always want to make sure that your quotations have valid, valid or have specified valid two dates and have a customer specified as well because it's not just an open invitation for anyone to, to actually accept that. Any questions about the quotation? It really is a very key document that we see a lot in sales processes for business-to-business -business transactions uh, where a customer will come to us and say, you know, I know your standard price is this, but I want a better price and we'll do that, but we have to respond with a quotation so that we have that particular uh, offer memorialized. Well, what we are hoping happens next is that we get an order in response to, to our quotation here. And so the next step in the process is the uh, sales order coming in, and the trigger for that is the customer sends us a purchase order. So make sure you, you get the terminology right here. The customer sends us a purchase order, and we put that into our system as a sales order. So the customer might send us a purchase order that their purchase order number is 1732 and we put that into our system and the system generates a sales num order number that's something that's uh, totally distinct from that. 
And so the sales order is a document that is based on a purchase order, but it's something that's totally different. And so in, in the first phase of the fulfillment process that we definitely will have, even if we didn't have a quotation before, we get a purchase order from a customer and we go in and we create the sales order. Now there's a lot of interesting things that have to happen in this receipt of a sales order process. And so let's talk about that for a second because it says here, first of all, we have to perform a credit check. And that absolutely is true. This might mean, for example, examining the customer's credit master record and seeing if they have sufficient credit. And we'll talk a little bit later about what happens if they don't. But if their credit line is good and this order is for less than their credit limit, then okay, that's good. We can kind of move ahead. But in fact, in this order receipt process, there might be other things other than their credit that we might want to check in our given organization. What else might we want to check? Once again, don't overcomplicate my question. This is not rocket science, unless we're selling rockets, and then I guess it is rocket science. But So you get an order, and you say, okay, I got to check credit limit. And okay, that's good. Credit limit's good. What else are we going to check? Ah, I might want to check, uh, do, do I have the product that they are trying to order from me? So that might be something that I would want to check. What else? Now that you got the ball rolling for us, who else can tell us something else we might want to check? Ah, I might want to. Now, why would I, would I perhaps want to check the customer's purchase history? Somebody. Okay, so that's, I'm going to find that in the customer material information record. I, I might need to consult that. That might be something. But uh, any other reason you can think of why I might want to check their purchase history? Yeah, if they're slow pay or if they already owe us a lot of money even though they're not technically over their credit limit, I, I might want to factor that into uh, whether or not I would accept this. Um, having been in a situation like this for companies selling products, I know that a lot of times you, you tell a customer, you, you, you already have a lot of past due bills with us, but we are willing to ship this out to you if you'll pay these two past due bills. And so you don't have to bring your account totally current, but we want you to bring it more current than it is. So you pay for these last two bills that you're overdue on and, and we'll accept this order. So we might want to check their purchase history. What else? What about issues related to is this customer permitted to buy this product from us. There are a lot of products that we might sell that not every customer has the ability to purchase. But the customer might not, might not know that and so might be sending us something that would represent a mistake on their part or they might be trying to pull a fast one 
and order something from us that technically uh, they should know that we're not allowed to sell them. Maybe, for example, our company sells materials that are perfectly valid for everyone, and then some products are hazardous materials. And we can only sell hazardous materials to companies that have been authorized by the government to handle hazardous materials, and this customer doesn't have that particular permission. We can't sell that to that customer. And so we need to check that before we accept their purchase order and put that into our system as a, a sales order. There are other things related to permission as well. Going back to my example about how Circuit City used to request custom product numbers. Well, maybe I've got an order from another company and they're referencing a Circuit City model number. And only Circuit City can buy that particular model because we customized it for them. And so we have another product that would be very similar, but technically we can't accept this purchase order because they're not authorized to buy that particular product from us. So the point I'm trying to make is this looks like we get a purchase order and we check the credit line and if the credit line's okay, boom, we put it into the system and it becomes a sales order. Accepting a purchase order is a big thing legally because if I accept a purchase order, a contract now has just been created. So before I accept that purchase order, I have to do company appropriate due diligence to make sure that this really is something. So I have to, you know, check the availability of materials. This wasn't mentioned, but check the delivery schedule. Maybe I do have the products, but the customer, you know, the purchase order says I have to have it to them next Monday, and I can't get a truck to them that quickly. So I might have to contact the customer and say, hey, I can get you the item by next Friday, but I, I can't do it by next Monday. And the customer might say, okay, that's fine, at which point I say, okay, send me an updated purchase order. And so I, I void the purchase order they sent me, and they send me a new one with the correct dates. So the requirement transfer, uh, you know, the idea here is, is I'm checking all of the different things related to do I want to accept this? And if so, now this becomes a requirement that I have to fulfill as a company to honor my, my obligation. One of the things that I might also check is Inco terms. You know, maybe the customer is trying to pull a fast one and they've sent us a valid purchase order, but it says that they have 180 days to pay. And I don't want to let them have 180 days to pay. My standard terms are net 30. I give them 30 days to pay. So I can't accept a purchase order that says net 180. I have to contact them and say, I'd love to have your business, but I can't give you 180 days to pay. Um, maybe we'll compromise and we'll give you 60 days to pay. Send me a purchase order that says net 60 and I'll take it. So there's a lot that goes into this order acceptance process. But if we decide to accept the order, we, we put into the system a sales order. It is critically important that we accurately capture all of the information related to the customer's requirements and the terms of the sale and memorialize it in the sales order. So if you will, you know, this is the PO and this is the sales order, these guys have to be in perfect agreement. 
What I can't do is I can't take something that was on the purchase order that I accepted and change it on the sales order. You know, if the purchase order was for 50 units, I, I can't put 40 units over here on the sales order. I accept the purchase order as is, or I don't accept the purchase order. I can't partially accept it. It's kind of an all or nothing thing there. So the data in the sales order, obviously I'm going to have information coming from the material master about the materials. I'm going to have quantities and dates that the user is going to type into the system. I'm going to have pricing conditions that are going to be represented here in the sales order. By the way, some of you ran into that problem in part of your lab exercises where you went to put in a sales order and you had a material defined, but the system said you don't have any pricing conditions defined. And it was normally a case where something was, was not entered correctly as it related to conditions, so it couldn't find the appropriate pricing schedule. The system will reference contracts so that if the customer said they were going to buy so many units from us, we maintain that and we let you know the system know that, okay, they've ordered now some of those things. So all of that's going to go into this sales order. There's lots of different ways that this could actually play out. We could have given the customer a quotation and then given the customer another quotation and then after all of that, they wind up sending us a sales order. We could have given the customer one quotation and get multiple sales orders that reference that same quotation. If we give them a quotation that's valid for 90 days, we kind of hope they might place multiple orders with us during that 90-day period. But the point of this particular diagram that comes from your book is one of the things that makes data entry easier here is when we can copy things. So you might recall you've done this in your lab work where you issued a quotation from the customer to a customer and then essentially the customer said, okay, sold, I'll, I'll take it. And so when you got their purchase order, you just went in, looked up the quotation and you adopted the quotation into a sales order, which resulted in all of that data being copied over so that you didn't have to retype it and you also didn't run the risk of typing something there that that would be incorrect. So ultimately we get a sales order document. A sales order document actually has three different sections to it. Now we've seen documents before that have two different sections. Um, a header section and a line item section. So this is kind of different. A sales order actually has three different levels where we have a header section, a line item section, and then a schedule line that goes with the different line items. And so the idea here is, um, if we look at it, we'll start with the left and then we'll look at a, a populated example. So the header contains the general information about who the customer is and the purchase order number and the dates and things like that. And so one of the items that they ordered from us, we're going to ship it to them all in one shipment on a certain date. But the other item they ordered, we're actually going to ship it a couple of different times. You know, maybe it's actually going to get there on the same day, but it's such a big order, it's going to have to go in two different trucks. So this is the idea where we could have for every line item the customer has ordered from us, we might have distinct schedule lines. So in this particular example, the customer has ordered 40 bicycles 
and they said they need them no later than the 10th of June, but they're open to getting deliveries before then. So we're going to ship them 30 on the 10th of May because we'll have them then, and then we're going to send them 10 more on the 10th of June. So every line item in a, in a sales order can actually have multiple different scheduling lines associated with it that might represent different quantities, different dates, or even different plants that this order, that that particular quantity is going to be fulfilled out of. One of the key elements in all of this that I have to look at when I am taking orders from customers is something called available to promise, which is normally abbreviated ATP. And you'll hear people talk about ATP or available to promise. And the term itself is, is really straightforward. Can I promise you that I will have you this product to you by a certain day? I, I kind of have had an ironic thing happen in the last three weeks. I order from Amazon with, with pretty good frequency. And in fact, sometimes I'll go like two weeks and not order anything from them. And then sometimes in a matter of a week, I'll place like three or four different orders. Well, over the last two weeks, I've placed six different orders with Amazon. And three of them did not arrive when they were supposed to. One of them, I was told that the item would ship the same day and I would have it the next day. And it's now 10 days later and the item still hasn't shipped. Another item I ordered um, was actually coming from Japan and I was supposed to have the item in two weeks and now the expected delivery date is December 22nd, which is a little bit more than two weeks from now. And so in both of those instances, as I have followed up on it, it seems like the company promised me something that they didn't actually have and really they shouldn't have made that promise. Companies don't want to do that kind of thing because if we accept the purchase order and then we don't fulfill it, we could find ourselves in, in legal hot water. So this concept of available to promise basically is if I get an order from a customer and they say they want this quantity on this date, can I promise them that I can fulfill that? And the system, this is now a great example of where having an integrated system works in our favor. And so here's how the system's going to evaluate that. It's going to do what's called backward scheduling. We'll see this a lot and different things that we'll talk about here in the second half of the semester with uh, production this comes up and other things of that sort. It's not that complicated though. You start with, okay, this is when the customer said I had to have it to them. So we'll work through one of these. The customer said I had to have it to them by November 15th. So can I promise them that I'll have it to them? Well, the first thing I have to look at is transit time. How long is it going to take me to get it to them? And let's assume that this is something that I have to ship by way of a semi-truck. Maybe it's the forklifts we've been talking about. And they're in California. And I know that if I load them onto a semi and the semi delivers it to California, I, I know that that's going to take um, eight calendar days. 
So now all of a sudden we back that up and, and so when I account for transit time, I could ship it as late as November 7th and, and it will get there on time. Well then the next thing we look at is, is loading time. And you might say, well, that, that's not that, you know, why is that a thing? Well, some things, like the forklifts we're talking about, um, I don't just like drive the forklift into the semi and say, okay, driver, take off. You know, I have to, I have to tie them down, I have to make sure that they're secured properly, and it actually takes me about a day to actually load them up into the semi. So now all of a sudden when I take loading time into account, now I'm back to, to November 6th. Well then the system will look at two different things. The first thing it'll look at is transportation lead time, which is how far in advance do I have to contact a trucking company to make arrangements for shipment. And maybe the trucking company that I deal with requires five days notice, which that would mean I would have to notify them by November 1st. Okay, but the other side of it is I look at, okay, on my end, how long is it going to take me to pick and pack and prepare these forklifts? And just for the example working through here, um, I know that to pick and pack that is going to take eight days. Now notice it does these in parallel because the idea is that I could be working on picking and packing during the transportation lead time and vice versa. So it looks at these and it takes the longest of these two, which is eight days. So now I have to back up eight days, which would take me what, to October 30th? And so now here's my order date. Today is October 29th. Well, guess what? I can make a promise to have it to the customer on November 15th because my evaluation shows that I can actually get it to them there. So that's the available to promise I passed. Okay? But if the facts were a little bit different and the customer said I need it by November 10th, I can't get it there by then. I cannot accept that purchase order because I fail my available to promise check. The way this is going to be evaluated will play out differently whether I'm a make-to-stock or make-to-order company, something we'll talk about a little bit later, but essentially am I custom making for each individual customer or am I just pulling things out of a warehouse? Is this something that I buy from another company? You know, that could be what's going on here. Uh, I have to order this from my supplier and so, you know, it's going to take me eight days to get it from my supplier and then I have to pick and pack it and I have to load it and there has to be transit time. So the system will automatically work through all of this. Have you seen this before? And I know you have, although it's probably been a while, where you put in a sales order and one of the things you put in is a required delivery date. And after you hit enter, a little dialog box will pop up and say something like, dates have been reevaluated or something like that. And then you just hit enter and you save. That dialog box popped up because the system did an ATP check. And it discovered, yeah, those dates are okay. I can accept the order. And in our system, you're never going to fail ATP because basically we have instantaneous everything because it's a fake company. But in a real company, that checking of availability is, is a key element here. Any questions about this? Yes, sir. Uh, during the transit time, 
I mean, and that's a very good question because we will tell the system how to do this evaluation. And so what might be going on here is I might have hard-coded in um, particular values here, or the system might be collecting it based on how it knows that things have played out in the past and doing its own calculation. For example, it could calculate pick-pack time if there's enough data in the system for it to do it. So that's going to depend on how we have it configured. And that's why we want to push this onto the computer as well, because it might be different for different products. If somebody says, hey, I need a new fan belt for my forklift, I could send that out to them overnight by FedEx. They could have it tomorrow. But if someone says, I need a new forklift, I can't have that to them by tomorrow. So the system's going to have to do this for every individual item, really based on a separate set of rules related to how we're going to get that item to the customer. Other questions? Yes, ma'am. To follow up on that, that was for CPM, you know, Absolutely. Okay. Yeah, that's exactly what's going on here. It's a, a great illustration of that. Mm -hmm. Other questions? Yes, sir. First of all, I want to back up and say you asked a really good question, which is, even though we do the available to promise check, that doesn't mean that at this point, you know, like pixies take over and the stuff always does get there on time. You know, sometimes there's a trucker strike, there's bad weather, who knows what that interferes with this. There's, there's a legal concept called, called privity which has to do with how responsibility flows in a given transaction. I have, you know, here's me and, and here's my customer. The customer has contracted with me for the purchase. If the contract is that the way we're going to fulfill this is the customer takes ownership at my dock, that I don't have to worry about any of this. But if I think somebody's trying to get in, I didn't unlock the back door, I guess. I'm sorry about that. I, guess, I thought the nursing people had done that. But if I'm on the hook for delivery, so I contract with a trucking company and something happens and it gets there late, the customer's gonna look at me to make good on that, which might mean giving them a discount, who knows what it might mean. And then I'm probably going to turn to the trucking company and say, hey, I had to cut this customer a $1,500 discount, and I didn't do anything wrong. We paid you $10,000 to get this there. We want a little bit of a discount. And, you know, depending upon how much I ship with the trucking company, you know, this is now where it becomes, you know, let's just work through this and, and try and make good. But specifically to answer your question, yeah, I'm on the hook. I mean, it doesn't matter that I, we use another trucking company. Um, you know, they're, they're, I'm, a, I'm the one who made the promise. And so I'm the one who looks bad. Now, the reality is that in a lot of situations, the customer said they needed it on 11.15. And if it shows up on 11.16, 
they might not even say anything about it. But if they said they needed it on 1115 because on 1116 they had to use those forklifts for something really critical and because they weren't there they had to go out and rent forklifts, I might be on the hook for that rental fee. So, you know, that's where perhaps I want to make sure that as I'm doing this ATP calculation, I, I'm not being overly aggressive in my planning here. And that's, those are all really good considerations that you guys have, have brought up here. Questions? And, and tying to this, so available to promise, uncommitted stock and receipts considered to be available to satisfy potential customer orders. So remember in the system how you had, you know, stock that might have been block stock or in inspection and all those other things. So the system's going to look at not only do I have forklifts, but do I have forklifts that I can promise to this customer? And if I do, then it'll put a reservation in for them so that I know, okay, I have those forklifts, but I've already promised them to another customer. And so they now move into some kind of restricted stock status to keep me from selling them to, to someone else. Inventory sourcing is, is a big issue here because this is going to be, um, you know, how am I going to get the materials to fulfill this particular order from a customer? And, and there are three very common ways I could do this. Maybe I'm, I'm going to pull this out of my own stock inventory. I have a warehouse, I'm selling out of the warehouse. And so when the system does its ATP check, it's going to check the materials management inventory. It's going, and if you ever had that happen, you go to Best Buy and uh, you're looking for a product and you notice the, the shelf is empty. And so you go to the clerk and say, hey, I'm looking for that. And the clerk says, let me check the computer. And they go to the computer, click, click, click. The computer says we have four of them. And then they spend the next 20 minutes trying to locate one of them. I actually had that happen a few months ago. And to my great amazement, the clerk actually came back and found one. You know, I'm just used to normally when they say that they can't ever find it. But the idea here is if the way I'm going to fulfill this is, first of all, I can fulfill it from stock. And so I check, I check materials management. But maybe, okay, I, I can't promise out of stock because I, I don't have any of the forklifts the customer wants. Well, then we can look at, okay, what about my in-house production process? I, I make forklifts. And so now I look at this idea of fulfilling the order based on internal procurement, which is another way of saying produ production. And so I might look at my production schedule. And I might say, well, you know, there's enough flexibility in my production schedule that I could work in 10 forklifts for this customer. Now, as we will later talk about, there's a couple different ways this could happen. I could be operating under a scenario where I custom make orders for customers. And so in that case, I know, all right, it takes me 10 days to make a forklift, but my factory already has work underway through the 12th of November. So I, I work through the production schedule to decide available to promise. 
Other times, the production schedule is set independent of customer requirements, but I could see when things are going to be produced. And I could look at the schedule and say, well, they're not necessarily making these for my customer, but I can see that on November 1st, they're making 20 of these forklifts, so I'm going to reserve 10 of them for this customer order. The other alternative is external procurement. This would particularly be relevant for trading goods, where now I'm looking at, okay, I don't have the item. Either I don't make the item, or for whatever reason, I don't want to make the item, and so I'm actually buying it from another company. Then my available to promise has to look at, okay, how long is it going to take me to get it? And we've talked about this before. That's like when you go to Amazon and sometimes it says this item will be available to ship in two weeks because they're going to get your order. They're going to turn around and place it with their supplier. Their supplier is going to take a week or so to get it to them. And then within that time frame, Amazon will be able to ship it out to you. So you can see where this, this check can actually involve you know, a sequence of things that we are checking because the bottom line is I don't ever want to turn away an order that I could have accepted. But I also don't want to accept an order that I can't fulfill. So I want the system to help me because if my rule of thumb is going to be no, I only ever sell out of inventory I have on hand, I might turn down orders that I, I really could have accepted. And we also have to understand that in particular when you're dealing with business-to-business -business transactions, oftentimes it's not like when you order something from Amazon where you want it the next day. You know, businesses are perfectly fine with waiting two weeks, three weeks, or, or even a longer time horizon. I know that when ETSU orders computers for campus, um, um, in the spring of every year, according to a schedule, faculty and staff on campus get new computers. I know this because this is my year to get a new computer. They actually placed the order with Dell uh, by November 1st for delivery, I think, sometime in February or March. So they have to order far, far in advance. And what Dell does is the further you order in advance and the more time you give them, the better price they'll give you. And so all of that goes into their uh, available to promise schedule um, as it relates to fulfilling that particular order. Questions about this? Well, mm -hmm. I mean, in manufacturing, and, and some of you perhaps, if you've ever taken a production and operations management class, which I realize probably 90% of you have not, uh, you talk about things like just-in-time manufacturing. Uh, the Japanese really were the first to really perfect this, where, you know, they basically said, if we need it on November 1st, we want it you know, on October 31st or November 1st, we don't want it a week before then. We don't want it late, but we don't want it really early. And in fact, what, what has happened to Japan as a result is, you know, here's the factory, 
the customer and here's all their suppliers basically right next door to them and in some cases their suppliers deliver to them multiple times a day because they'll say we want this at 1 p.m. we want this at 3 p.m. and the stuff comes in just right as it's needed because that way we don't have to have a big warehouse we don't have stuff sitting around and there's a lot of merit to that so yeah you know that's why if if we're dealing with it you know we might be dealing with a customer that this is the way they operate in which case if we miss a delivery date we might lose them as a customer and then we have other customers that don't really care that much one of the things that I, I saw a demo for, and it was really kind of funny to me, we talked last time about HANA and some of the things that it opens up as far as new functionality. I saw a video demonstrating HANA in the domain of CRM like we were talking about before. And the scenario was, you're a salesperson and you've made a sales call on a customer and they want to order 10,000 units of something for you for delivery next Friday. And as you check in the system and do an available to promise check, you discover that you can't fulfill that order. You don't have time, which is normally where this would stop. But now with HANA, they said, now you have a new option. You can go into the system and look for other customers that maybe aren't as good a customer that have an order for that product and bump their orders. And it shows the salesperson going in and saying, there's another customer that ordered 8,000 units and they're 10 days late paying their last bill. So take that order and move it to this customer and, and back order this customer and make them wait. And I was thinking, wow, that was kind of a controversial thing for them to actually use as a demo in their video because it, you know, that happens. Uh, but they were just really out front with use HANA to bump orders from customers. And, uh, you know, it even talked about, you know, well, this customer is not as important. So if you deliver late to them, so what? And it was like showing, you know, how much they'd ordered from you. And so it was like, hey, this customer doesn't order that much from you. Anyhow, who cares if their order's late? And I was like, okay, you know, I guess that's, uh, I mean, that's very practical and real world. And so that's kind of what we're talking about here, too, for, for making those, uh, those things. Personally, to me, if we're going to call it available to promise, I probably think we should fulfill our promise as opposed to just saying, well, I know I promise, but you're not that good a customer, so... Oh well, take a hike. You know, I, I, I don't like that as much, but uh, it happens. Uh, shipping. We'll, we'll come back and talk about this, but nothing, you know, uh, really significant we have to do here. We, we do create outbound deliveries which is going to be, you know, how we're going to use to coordinate these shipments. We might have to pick the product. We might have to pack the product. I, I put these down as optional. Why did I say picking? Well, first of all, picking is walking through the warehouse or some alternative to that and finding the item. Packing is putting it in a box. Why are those things optional? There are at least two really good answers to my question. Ah, drop shipping means I, I don't pick and I don't pack, but I might schedule an outbound delivery. Okay, great. Drop shipping overrides that. Why else might I not pick and pack? Okay, but when I'm done producing it, I'm still going to have to pick and pack it. Maybe, maybe it's a service, not a 
not a product and I'm looking at basically scheduling a service person to go out and fulfill a service and he's probably not going to like it if I try and stuff him in a box as his way of getting to the customer. Uh, so that, and then we could also be talking about things where the customer orders it from us and, and we do deliver it to them, but maybe it's like a, some kind of digital thing. It's a digital delivery, and so that there's not actually a physical product in the traditional sense. So there, there are times when our, our fulfillment might not actually involve actually picking and packing. Um, but we are going to eventually have to post the goods issue. And this is an important step that I think we have seen before. But what's significant about this is this is when we transfer ownership. This is when we stop owning the item and our customer starts owning the item. And that's going to be a key element here based on INCO terms. Because we don't want to have something sitting on our balance sheet that we don't own. And we don't want to have something that we own not represented on our balance sheet. So, you know, it might be that we transferred ownership yesterday and it's today that we do the accounting postings. I mean, I don't think anybody assumes that the very second ownership passes that we're going to update our records. But clearly, we, we, need, to be, we need to have this memorialized as a part of the process to, to make sure that, that that happens. This is a good place for us to stop for today, and, and so we will, we will do that. Um, hope all of you have a good rest of the day. If anyone didn't get a chance to sign in, the sign-in sheet is up here.